everyone. Um, how are we all? Um, so I've been meaning to do this for a while and I've been tooling around with the idea, spending a good two, three years telling myself, I will do it, I will do it. And, oh, I don't know, it's not quite right. And maybe I should think about this or that first and I should do more planning and maybe I should have more obvious monetization on the ground first before doing this. And I don't know. I just decided, actually, I'm just going to start. No time like the present. And also, since we're all in, it's like, what? Are you going to run away from me? No, we're all in lockdown. We're all self-isolating or in government-mandated lockdown. So uh, I guess we're all kind of captive. Anyway, this is an introduction slash reintroduction. Actually, I'm just going to call it straight up an introduction to me and my podcast. Hi, my name is Tarie Peterside. I am an actor, writer, voiceover artist, and yeah, this is my podcast. I had previously started a podcast um, some years ago. You can tell it was years ago. It was back when it was Game of Thrones season six. And, you know, before the bitter, crushing disappointment came for all of us. Um, but, yeah, I had previously started this some years ago with someone else. And um, I just decided to carry on. So this is an introduction to the new format of the Paradoxical Podcast so yeah, this is me. I am. I talk about films, television, and stage, and pop culture at large. But film, television, and stage are my three great loves. Uh, as I said, I'm an actor, writer, and voiceover artist. So these are the things I want to do. These are what I want to make my career in. These are the things about which I am very passionate. And I hope that that passion will instill something in other people or get other people listening, hopefully. Um, so yeah, hello. Um, I just wanted to introduce myself, say hi, how are we all? and just put something out there to take our minds off things. I was on Instagram Live a couple of days ago and I started talking to, I think, just seven people, just just seven people um, about what was on Netflix. Um, because everybody was just sort of, the few people I was talking to were at home and wondering, oh, what should I watch? Is there anything good? I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, I just thought I'd use that as a vehicle for um, beginning my podcast and beginning this, my introduction into the, uh, the pundit class, into the class of content creators, podcasters, YouTubers, that whole sort of thing. Um, so yeah, 
Anyway, I thought I would kick off with my inaugural episode, and that is an analysis of D. Because I saw both of these films somewhat recently, and oddly enough, they struck me as being very similar, as being fundamentally about the same sort of thing. They ask similar sorts of questions and they are telling the same story. Now, granted, that story is presented through, but it is fundamentally the same structure. It just so happens that the end result is what's different. So, settle in. I've got a lot to say. Anyway, um, so yeah, I thought I would kick things off with my thoughts, oddly enough, on Joker. Now, by the time this is coming out, lots of lots has been said and opined and podcasted and YouTubed and everyone and their grandmother's been talking about this film and it died down a bit, but then it reignited with um, the Oscars. And yeah, it was one of those, it's one of those films I think is supposed to define a generation, is supposed to define an era of cinema, you know, I think we're going to look back on Joker and it, we're going to, well, a lot of us are probably going to look back on it the way we look back now on films like Fight Club. Um, I would say Taxi Driver, but that's a bit obvious because we all know by now that Todd Phillips intended Joker to be sort of like a latter day taxi driver slash king of comedy to the point of even casting Robert De Niro as the talk show host. Anyway. So yeah. My initial thoughts on Joker were not good. I'm just going to start start off the gate start off the bat right now and tell you I did not enjoy this film at all um and it's not because I went in not wanting to enjoy the film I love cinema I love films I want to be moved I want to feel things I want to enjoy time I spend at the cinema but I was watching Joker and I anything I didn't feel what it wanted me to feel, I didn't feel anything, even in films that other people laugh at, lambast, make fun of. I, I've always managed to feel something. And this is one of those few films that, from, that has just sort of left me a bit numb. I didn't really... Well, no, not numb. It left me a bit cold. I didn't, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel that. I didn't feel ignited the way other people did. And yeah, I didn't much care for this film at all. It felt, 
it felt like a film that was more of depth than the actual depth itself than actually doing the work of of providing that level of cinematic depth at least that's how i felt it if you disagreed fine um but i also wanted to comment briefly on um the the cinematic landscape into which joker was being released you know um it was 2019 we'd had what we'd had end game we'd had more marvel films you know we'd had more entries into the dc universe and i think todd phillips and joaquin phoenix had envisaged had envisaged joker as a means of utilizing the films to well yeah to basically start a conversation to get people to feel things to actually hearken back to an uh time in cinema or to incite something in the cinematic landscape that they feel might be missing in our current context and yeah that's fine uh people have different reasons for wanting to tell stories i i can completely get with that i can totally get behind that it's just that there's a weird subset of fans of this film that whenever people uh express their distaste with the film express that they didn't like it were bored with it express anything that is deemed negative about the film out comes a certain contingent of oh you just want everything to be like the marvel film <laughs> and that's well it's quite juvenile but um but yeah what are you going to do um yeah i felt joker now don't get me wrong i enjoy the marvel films as well um i enjoy all kinds of films really i don't know why it is that people feel the need it's like if you enjoy this one kind of film you can't enjoy anything else or if you like this particular type of lighthearted entertainment you can't like anything more substantive in the same medium it's rubbish all of us contain multitudes so someone is capable of liking citizen kane and a marvel film you know someone's capable of loving la traviata and jackass you know it's like yeah all of us contain multitudes and all of us all of that constructs who we are you know but i joker didn't really gel with me because joker felt to me at least somewhat juvenile because it felt like it was still very much stuck in that idea of oh look how gritty we are look how quote unquote real we are you know this isn't your your mom's or your dad's comic book film you know we're not like all that other kitty stuff we're grown up and oddly enough i left i left joker and i had a quote sort of going it was the quote by cs lewis of all people and it was cs lewis's quote quite long quote about the nature of being grown up about the nature of 
adults and what it means to grow up and how that might shape your taste. And I'm actually going to share that quote with you guys. Um, so yeah, he's critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of as a merely descriptive term cannot be adult themselves to be concerned about being grown up to admire the grown up because it is grown up to blush at the suspicion of being childish. These things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow, but to carry on into middle life or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of a really arrested development. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including fear of childishness and the desire to be seen as very grown up. And to me, that, that, that quote just encapsulates so much about the na nature of, of everything, about how we talk about film and pop culture as a whole and, and cinema and m all forms of media, because there's this strange preoccupation with oh, we're grown up, we're not like kids, you know, we're not for the teenagers or anybody younger and, you know, we're real and we're gritty and we're so edgy, oh, so edgy, you know? And to me, it just smacks of like when you're a teenager and you want to appear to be grown up, so you throw away everything that you enjoyed when you were younger in an attempt to to look at to appear like you are grown up like you are mature but actually you're not you know oddly enough it's an adulthood you find yourself going back to the things that you loved as a kid and realizing actually i'm just gonna being an adult means liking what you like unashamedly and saying do you know, you know what i do like this i enjoyed it when i was a child i enjoy it now it brings me joy you know, it, it makes me feel, it, in, it engenders or incites or sparks something in me. And it's an overall, that's a good feeling. And <laughs> the mark of true adulthood to me is being able to say, yeah, I like what I like. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know? So for me, this is why I couldn't really gel well with Joker because it felt so much like, I don't know if I if I was if I was 15 I probably would be all over this film but I'm not I'm 27 and um it's not like 27 is some grand masterful age at which you have so much wisdom it's just that I've done so much work of introspection and I'm continuing to do the work of introspection and trying to grow up and carve out what my adult identity means to me and what that means in my life and what I'm prepared to hold on to and what I'm prepared to let go of and what I need to hold on to and what I need to let go of. And so for me, at where I am in my life and in my context, Joker feels... I don't know, like an earlier iteration of myself in adolescence would have been all over this film because I was proper edgy, you know, 
So I was wearing all black and I was like, there's no joy to be found in the world. It, joy is the stuff of immaturity. And then I, and something clicked in me after about university and I started going to therapy and something clicked in me when I was just like, excuse me, like, okay, but you're miserable. Like, yeah, it's all well and good. Acting all head, all edgy and mature, but it's like, but has it made you any happier? No. Has it materially increased any kind of quality in your life? No, it hasn't. Like, has it made you any thinner, any richer, any, you know, cuter? No, no, no. So what are you holding on to this for? Is <laughs> how I feel. Um, and yeah, um, Joker just feels like a lit, like the latest iteration of, of um, this trope or trend we've been seeing across film, television, and a, a lot of media of the tortured protagonist. You know, you got your, your Sherlock Holmeses, your Dr. Gregory Houses, your Rick Sanchez's, you know, and uh, your Tyler Durden's. And Joker, this iteration of the Joker, in my opinion, just feels like the latest, the latest in that line of, oh, oh, I'm so edgy. But actually, in my opinion, Joker is actually sort of like the new Tyler Durden in the sense of <sighs> a lot of people who don't understand the film and the character and the point of this character as a deconstruction are going going to sort of glom onto it. Um, that's always a risk you run. Um, I think Malcolm Gladwell had a podcast in which he, uh, in which he asked um, Harry Enfield on, and he was talking about the satire paradox, but this isn't limited strictly to satire. And it was how Harry Enfield's character, Loads of Money, um, was all about satirizing, you know, Reaganomics and Thatcherite economics and, you know, the whole greed is good 80s era that was all about rampant, rampant capitalism and rap and rampant deregulation, you know, and how he talks about how, how, and Malcolm Gladwell in the podcast spoke about how, and, uh, and Harry Enfield spoke of an unintended consequence of the character was that people who, who were being satirized by the loads of money character actually really liked the loads of money character because they thought he was funny in the sense of, well, this is based in truth. Therefore it is funny. I love this character. It's based in things that I see every day. It's true. So it's funny. Kind of like how American Republicans really loved uh, Stephen Colbert when he was doing the Colbert Report, and um, and how they very much loved his character and the the that portrayal of himself, in the sense of uh, aha, he's on our side really, and laughing along because they feel the character is laughing with them, not at them, and. I feel like this iteration of Joker, I think we're headed for the exact 
same problem with this iteration of Joker of people looking at this version of the character and seeing him and and thinking thinking yes this this is exactly it and not in the not in the way that a lot of people preemptively reported of oh the next school shooter is gonna want to copy joker or something no not in that sense but more in the more nuanced and more considered sense of in the same way in the same way a lot of people glom onto films like fight club um that fail to recognize it's a deconstruction of toxic masculinity or the people that glom onto rick sanchez from rick and morty because they fail to recognize that rick is a toxic person that you shouldn't want to be around However, many times they try and hammer that home in episode after episode after episode. Um, there are, there's still a contingent that forms part of their identity around that character, around feeling like the character is, is, is something that is in concert with them rather than an indictment of them is how I feel. But that's a risk you run all the time. That's that's the risk anybody runs when you put out art, when you put out a character, when you put out any form of satire or drama or anything. That is a risk you will run. And I feel like we're in for that big time with this Joker character. Like, I think Joker is this generation's, like, Tyler Durden, I think, cinematically speaking. Um, in, in terms of TV, we've already got, we've already got Sherlock Holmes and, and, um, and Rick Sanchez. So, yeah. Um, but that was a very long drawn out tangent all to say Joker felt quite juvenile to me um, mainly because um, mainly because that didn't see, it didn't seem to say a lot at least not to me um, like I said, 15-year-old me would have been all over this film, but 27-year-old me, she's eh, she's been in therapy, she's still going to therapy, she's working on herself and working on introspection and working on being better and kinder to myself and to others, and, and 27-year-old me is just like, yeah, I don't have patience for this anymore. <laughs> um but yeah, also, I wanted to talk about the quote-unquote mythos of the Joker because I'm just going to say it. I think Heath Ledger permanently might have broken the character. Now, something happened after Heath Ledger was, a, was posthumously awarded that Oscar for his portrayal of the Joker in the Dark Knight film. And that is... Uh, that is like a weird secondary like Hollywood mythos sprung up not just around method acting but also around the character of the Joker and it's been seeping through and seeping through to the point where you're seeing it happen among audience members and people who just partake of film and tv who just casually watch film and tv to the people who who look at the stuff more in depth anybody who partakes of any kind of pop culture there's like this this weird secondary like mythos that's now permeated through like all pop culture echelons surrounding the joker and 
And I think it's kind of Heath Ledger's fault <laughs> for dying. No, 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 that's mean. Um, but yeah, something happened after Heath Ledger died and he was awarded that Oscar after his death. It's that... So a quick uh, preface to this argument, and that is um, there is a kind of mis not mystique, but there is a sort of mythos around method acting in Hollywood and in cinema as a whole. And it's been, it's been slowly sort of fermenting and cooking since about Marlon Brando, you know, since James Dean and Marlon Brando, all those types. And, um, and something has happened with method acting as a whole in Hollywood. And, and, and what's happening is, is that we're seeing a lot of actors, predominantly male actors, um, ever since Brando, you know, you've got your, your Jared Leto's and your, and your, um, who else is a method actor? Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, all sorts of other actors as well. Um, across multiple generations in Hollywood who do this thing where they say, where it's like they, they use method acting kind of as a means to justify making life hard for other people <laughs> during production. Um, you know, like I'm, I've actually studied method acting and I'm not one of those people who love touting the Laurence Olivier, Dustin Hoffman story of like, oh, my dear boy, have you considered acting? It's just like, I'm so tired of that anecdote, that story. I'm so tired of that. Um, I'm so tired of that sort of attitude around acting because there is, there is something of value in method acting, in training to do the method, in, in training yourself to look within yourself and to find that emotional truth that links you to the character, that makes you able to portray that character. There is something of value there. You can see it all through, all up and through Meryl Streep's career. You can see it with Viola Davis. You can see it with so many fantastic working actors today. But in addition to that, we've also gotten, you know, the Jared Leto kind of method actor who is basically abusing everybody on set and making life miserable for everybody else. Christian Bale's another one makes life miserable for everybody else on set. And like to the point where even Robert Pattinson of all people like in an interview said, you know, I think we just use method acting as like, I think people just use the term method acting as an excuse to, to, to act horrible as an excuse to be assholes. And I was like, you know what? I think you're right. Something's happened in method acting where there's this strange kind of mystique around it of like a, oh, they're method. Oh, they're so method. Oh, did you hear? Like they did such an intense routine and such an intense mental exercise to be able to get into the head of the character. And so you add that, that's decades in the making, popularized by the likes of Marlon Brando, you know, and other male actors in Hollywood like Jared Leto and Christian Bale and all of them who are sort of, who have been inspired by Brando in particular, but Brando's sort of generation of actors. And you get them putting that into their performance. And then what happens? You also get 
<laughs> and then <laughs> and then you couple that couple that with Heath Ledger's performance of the Joker in Dark Knight and then add on top of that to this big cocktail Heath Ledger's tragic passing and then add to that the posthumous winning of the Oscar and it's made for this strange kind of mystique around cinematic portrayals of the Joker of people being like oh the Joker oh, this actor's going to play the Joker. Have you heard about the Joker? And oh my God, and this character, this actor. And it's just like, so yeah, I think Heath Ledger might have irreparably broken all cinematic portrayals of the Joker. And I think that might be feeding into why I did not gel with this film. <laughs> if we're being completely candid, if we're being totally candid, because this kind of mystique has, has you know, propped up and it's like... It also feeds into that whole kind of gritty attitude. We're seeing it across so many forms of pop culture, you know, even, you know, I'm, I don't know. It took the last couple of seasons for me to, to be disillusioned with Game of Thrones. I think we all were in the end. It's just that, it's not that I didn't enjoy the show. I did enjoy the show. It's that, I look back on it now and I look back on the headspace I was in right when I started to really get into the show. And I realized, oh, um, we're still in that kind of juvenile zone of, oh, this ain't your mom's fantasy. This isn't like Lord of the Rings, all, all noble and everything. No, everything's so morally gray and everything's gritty and everything's tough and basically that just translates to tits everywhere and swords like um i would contrast that with a, with um the show harlots harlots is a show that's also very explicit but i prefer harlots because it's a show about regency era sex workers in england and basically it's a turf war between two classes of prostitute basically and um, I think Leslie Manville plays Lydia Quigley, Mrs. Quigley. She's the one who's in charge of all of like the upper class girls. And, you know, she's got the judges and the magistrates and whoever as her clients, you know, lords and dukes and everybody are her clients. And we're seeing the main characters who are, most of whom work for one of her rival boards who has just purchased a house in Greek Street, Soho. And she's like, okay, guys, we're moving up. We're going to be upwardly mobile. We'll be uh you know a uh, richer more affluent kind of clientele you know we're going to be able to afford things we never could before we're going to make money we're going to become women of means guys we're going to really get up there and it's basically a turf war between these two madams and and the prostitutes that work for them and everybody in their orbit and it sort of marries the two kind of quintessential british tv shows you know, because British TV tends to fluct tends to have two settings, gritty underbelly or period drama. And Harlots marries the two, in my opinion, quite well, because those are two sides of the same coin, you know? Um, so I gel with the show Harlots in a way I could never fully get on board with 
Game of Thrones. It's not that I didn't like Game of Thrones. I loved Game of Thrones. It's that I felt that Game of Thrones had the same problem for me that Joker did in terms of immaturity, of mistaking all of the trappings of being If you're not, then I think we need to talk about that. Um, um, so yeah, oh, I have just seen uh, two people in. Hey guys, what's up? Um, so yeah, I was talking about Joker. And another thing that I kind of didn't much care for about the film Joker is... Mm, another form of Hollywood mythos that surrounded this film, and that was of the auteur director. Now, in this particular instance, it came in the form of Todd Phillips. Um, but I feel like Todd Phillips used Joker as like sort of his entry into, I want to be considered as an auteur. I want to be seen as a... I don't know, a Quentin Tarantino or a Martin Scorsese or a Steven Spielberg or a Stanley Kubrick or any prolific, well-known director that has a, a particular kind of style that is synonymous with their name. Or like even the, or the Wachowskis. The Wachowskis have a very particular kind of style, a particular kind of narrative, a particular way of storytelling. That kind of auteur sort of thing. And I think that this film was sort of Todd Phillips' entry into being considered for authorship, I think. <laughs> I don't think it worked. Um, because, um, okay, let me get into the plot now, because I don't feel like the message landed in the way other people thought or felt it landed, particularly Todd Phillips and Joaquin and Joaquin Phoenix, because um, because Joker does a whole song and dance about, and it's more or less stated in the character's monologue when he's talking to Robert De Niro's character Murray. On the, on the late night show when he's talking about, oh, everybody's awful. Nobody thinks what it is to be the little guy. No one thinks what it is to be me. You don't see me. You don't notice anyone. And I was just thinking about everything I had seen in the film up until that point. And I was thinking, okay, but you don't do that either. Let's just go with some, some quick examples like... um the scene that was in the trailer, you know, when he's making the funny faces at the kid and the, 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 the black kid and like his mom is like, stop harassing my son, what are you doing? And, but the way that's framed and the way we, the audience are supposed to interpret that scene, we're supposed to think, oh, that lady's being mean and irrationally mean to Arthur, but it's a case of, okay, but she don't know you. <laughs> She don't know you and people snatch kids, <laughs> you know? Um, 
did you stop to empathize with her? Like, did you stop to think, hey, maybe she's not comfortable with you making faces at her kid? Nah, you're just thinking, oh no, everybody hates me, <laughs> you know? Or, um, or um, oh, like with Thomas Wayne. Now, Thomas Wayne is framed in the film as, you know, this piece of shit billionaire. And you know what? Yeah, that makes sense because, I mean, it, it's that saying, behind every great fortune is some great crime. And it's true. You don't get to be that rich without exploitative or abusive means. And I think that's what the film was trying to get at, trying to interrogate in the character of Thomas Wayne, and particularly in how Thomas Wayne deals with Arthur's character. But... But think about it from the perspective of, okay, but you rocked up at his house. You didn't call. You didn't make an appointment. You put your fingers in his child's mouth. This child don't know you. He don't know you. And you're just putting your fingers in, in a child's mouth any old which way. And like Thomas Wayne isn't probably thinking, oh, I'm some billionaire. I'm going to shit on you for fun. He's probably thinking, don't turn up at my house and put your fingers in my kid's mouth you weirdo. <laughs> like, he don't know you. Who are you, strange clown man? Um, or even like Zazie Beetz's character. Now, Zazie Beetz's character, like, everybody could kind of see the twist coming with that character. Because I was just like, okay, there's no way in hell. And then sure enough, um, it's revealed that, aha, this was a fabrication all along. Again, everybody could see it coming. Um, might as well have just, she might as well have just worn it on her jumper or something. But let's entertain for a moment that Zazie Beetz's character did have a relationship with Arthur. And uh, she's a very real person that exists in the world of the story. And Arthur is somebody who's saying, okay, no, nobody empathizes with anyone else. No one cares about the little guy. Okay, did you stop when you turned up in her house to terrorize her? Did you stop to think about, about poor old Daisy Beats as a single mom in what is supposed to be the late 70s, like early 80s, like crime-ridden era when like Reaganomics and everything is demonizing women like her, calling them crack cause and welfare queens and, you know, denying them welfare on even the, the little bit of welfare they're giving people like her, they're racializing it and using it as a, as a tool of prejudice a systematic oppression and prejudice against people like her. Did you stop to think about that at all before you rocked up into her house? No, you didn't. So where do you get off going on Robert De Niro's show talking about, oh, everybody's so horrible and no one thinks about anyone else. Okay, but did you? <laughs> so that was my issue with the film as a whole. Um, also, I don't... Hang on. I have so many notes. I'm referring to my notes. Hang on. Yeah. Um, so, so that's another thing I wanted to talk about. Joker is a film that claims to be all about holding a mirror up to society, about showing the very real ways in which we cast people off and we fail to empathize with them and we and we victimize them and we might contribute to a person's marginalization or victimization without even knowing. But it's a case of, 
okay, but um, it's really weirdly, bizarrely stripped of any kind of racialization or any kind of gendered analysis. Because again, we're in supposed to be in a late 70s kind of context when uh, late 70s, early, like late 70s, 80s kind of context where Reaganomics is getting off the ground and it's all, all about greed is good and it's about ruthless kind of capitalism and all about shrinking social services and rampant deregulation of financial practices that ultimately mean spell financial ruination for a lot of people at the bottom. People like Arthur, but also people like Zazie Beetz's character, people like Brian Tyree Henry's character, the orderly that we see him steal from at Arkham Asylum. And it's just really weirdly devoid of any kind of analysis on those things because the film weirdly treats Black people like props ever so slightly. Like, so we go from Zazie Beetz's character to the Black woman and her child on the bus to Brian Tyree Henry when he's trying to get the records on his mom and things in Arkham Asylum. And it's like the film... I'm not saying that this was conscious or that, oh, it's horrible and nefarious. It's just like, it's just sort of like a weird quirk of the being inadvertently communicated. It's that you want to hold a mirror up to society, but what you're doing is weirdly using Black people as props to facilitate your narrative, even though those characters in the wider world of the in which the narrative takes place that we see are ostensibly having a much worse time like so even when we start with like arthur's um therapist the social worker slash therapist that that he's in the office of where she's talking about they're cutting the funding for this program you won't be able to come and, and have our appointments anymore and that's as She's part of the problem, but it's like, but, but you do. But if we look in her office, we see mountains and mountains and stacks and stacks and stacks of other people's case files. So it ain't just you. She's somebody that is trying to help a lot of people, but they're cutting the funding for the program and her hands are tied, you know? Uh, but the film doesn't stop to interrogate that, doesn't stop to interrogate the larger societal problem. It just sort of focuses in on one person. And in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. But what it sort of inadvertently communicates is, among other things, um, that, that Arthur is somehow at the bottom of the rung. And like, I don't want to get into this weird, like privilege in it and everybody goes running and everyone yells, how dare you say this? Da, 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 da. What about this? What about that? Everyone starts you going this, that, and the third about different caveats and everything. But a lot of people don't seem to understand is that privilege and oppression are not zero-sum games. You can be privileged in one aspect while still being an oppressor in another aspect, or you can be oppressed in one aspect and then turn that same oppressive behavior that is visited on you onto someone else that you think is having, that you think is lower than you.
oppression is something that like replicates itself and duplicates itself and permeates throughout every echelon of society. You know, no, everybody has that, that path. Everybody has the potential to be an oppressor. And similarly to everyone has some form of privilege or other, you know? Um, and I feel like the film just didn't do a good job of communicating that. Um, also, oh, so finally, so finally we come to Judy, the film Judy starring Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland in the final like six, seven years of her life during that uh, series of command performances she did in London. And every, every person who I talk to about film and TV and pop culture and anytime these films come up, because I bring them up, <laughs> I always say, I think Judy is a better Joker than Joker. <laughs> Judy's a better Joker than Joker because it's kind of about the same thing. Both the same thing. If you strip them down to just their bare bones, they are about, they are about people who have been specifically entertainers who have been left by the wayside in their respective societies. People who have been marginalized, victimized, brutalized by outside forces and are trying de desperately to claw their way back to or forward into, into just anything that is respite or reprieve from the ills and the evils of society that society has done to them, you know? And so like, and so a point of like contrast and comparison, like I wrote it down, I wrote it down. Here this paper, I wrote it down. Um, so I'm just gonna, I wrote it down. So I'm gonna read what I wrote. If Joker asked the question, what happens when people who have been historically used, manipulated and discarded by a cruel and uncaring system, plot of Judy, posits a similar um, scenario with the far more likely ending of the manipulated, dehumanized and abused person succumbing to their trauma and being devoured by that same system um, and being disposed of. And the best that they can hope for is being held up and immortalized as some kind of memory of who they once were or as just a shadow of what they once were. and. The far more likely conclusion to the tale is, is not the discarded loner learning to pick up a sword and avenge themselves, you know, a la Joker, but the far more realistic thing, the far more realistic situation that we see is, is um, the person finding off. And both of these characters, you know, start their respective films on autopilot. You know, they're just going through the motions of life. They're kind of in a haze and everything is just sort of down and going through life of thinking, well, I guess this is just how it is. And in the end, they, they both sort of reach a new level of self-actualization only to end up being immortalized, you know, while still being while also still being at the system's mercy, you know? Because like in Joker, we see Arthur, you know, being held up by 
Aaron, they're cheering for him, cheering for him. But what happens at the end? He's right back in the psych ward you know with judy we see her do that final performance and she's you know she's singing and everyone is singing somewhere over the rainbow with her and what happens um we see judy saying you won't forget me won't you and then she whispers to herself promise me you won't and are still while being immortalized while being held up are still are still at the mercy of the system that dehumanized them and there's something kind of poetic about that, poetic, tragic, I don't know. Um, but also one of the ways in which I prefer Judy to Joker is that for all of Joker's like pontificating about empathizing with people and we should be kind to the mentally ill, we shouldn't judge people, you know, we shouldn't because we might be inadvertently contributing to like their dehumanization or marginalization. Judy actually does the hard work of empathizing. Like there's a scene, it's completely fictional, but Judy um, is like, has just finished up that night's performances. She meets a pair of gay fans and they're like, would you like to come to dinner with us? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. And, and nowhere is open. So she goes to their flat and they make dinner for themselves and for Judy. And one of them, one of them is talking to Judy about why they couldn't come and see her the last time she was in London. And oh, the author route. She doesn't go the route of, well, what about me? She just she just sits there and listens. You know, he's like, oh, he was imprisoned. I was like, why was he in prison? Oh, well, the, the official charge was um um, was like lewdness or impropriety or, or something like that, or like sexual perversion or something. Basically he was locked up for being gay. And Judy says, what is it about this world? that like people see anybody that's different, anyone that's not what they want or who, who doesn't fit that. And they, they try and destroy that person. You know, they just, and they try and beat it out of that person. It's savage. And he just starts crying and Judy just, just holds him. And it's actually a really, it's actually a really heartfelt moment. It's actually just quiet, heartfelt moment in which we just dwell in what it means to empathize with somebody else and how somebody that might not know you, somebody that might not know you, somebody who may, might not be, might only be tenuously connected with you could potentially have such an impact in your life you know? And I feel like he succeeded where Joker failed, for me at least, because because and also I was going to say this as well, Judy and Joker are both, in my opinion, just sort of like cinematic, like, okay, I'm going to get really into like the GCSE A-level words um, of like to me, Judy and Joker are like cinematic microcosms of the way in which we teach people to process their emotional pain and emotional trauma according to gender, you know? Because to me, Joker is very emblematic of how we teach men or how we have previously thought it was okay to teach men to process like 
very negative, very bad, very toxic emotions, you know, how to, so we teach men to sort of explode <laughs> versus Judy, who sort of goes within herself and just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And Judy implodes under the on, under all of it. And to me, that's like a perfect, like, two sides of the same coin of like how we tell, how we have previously told, how we have previously told men and women to process everything within themselves that is emotional, you know? Everything that is potentially destructive within themselves. We teach men that, well, we socialize men and we've been socializing men to, to think that anger is is well i don't want to i don't want to be one of those people that says anger's never useful because that's not true anger can be a very useful emotion but it's like we teach we've been socializing men to not necessarily to have a constructive or positive outlet for anger or to even talk it out like there's still so much stigma around mental health issues as it regards men so many men don't want to go to therapy so many men um there's a reason that the suicide rates among men are so high and it's because of that stigma that stick like it's why i can never it's why i have very little tolerance for anytime i talk about mental health or therapy especially around uh, among women and things, uh, someone invariably, certain people, not all the time, but certain people will say, oh, well, the suicide rate in men is very high. What about that? And I'm just like, this isn't a gotcha. The problem is patriarchy. Like y'all have been socialized for literally centuries to just like hold on to this toxic ass emotion and to, to just explode with it to the point of burning everybody else around you. And we've all just collectively as a society been socializing everybody to think that's perfectly fine. That's messed up and we need to fix that. We're in the process of fixing that, but we still have so far to go. And that's another reason why I couldn't get with Joker because a lot of people say, oh, it's about empathizing with the mentally ill. It's about empathizing with people that struggle with mental illness, who struggle with their mental health, you know, it's about taking away the stigma. But in my opinion, at least for me, I mean, somebody else could have the completely opposite opinion. And that's totally cool if you do. But I feel like Joker kind of contributes to that stigmatization of the of mental illness and people that struggle with mental health, because it's basically saying, hey, be kind to people who are mentally ill, or they'll murder you in your bed or they'll incite a riot. And it's like, this isn't helping. <laughs> the message could just be go to therapy, but nah, you had to make, you had to make the person who wouldn't go to therapy a homicidal clown, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is just another reason I couldn't get with this film. But I could get with Judy because I empathized so hard with it. And because we all do, maybe it's because I'm an actor, writer, voiceover artist. I'm somebody who wants to entertain you know? And, and so I could potentially get with Judy in a way I couldn't with Joker because I identified so hard with the ways in which, at least the, at least the way in which it was implied by the film that Judy uses her instinct to entertain as 
as a means of reaching out for love, as a means of reaching out to have human connection with other people. It's why that scene where she's hugging the guy in his, it's why that scene meant so much to me because it was a means of, oh, wow, that, that's what I think a lot of entertainers do. It's that they use the their and everything in, in the capacity of like just reaching out for human connection, reaching out for love, reaching out to be felt, to be heard, to be seen. And to that end, that's why I feel like Judy's a, a better Joker than Joker. I mean, not least because Renee Zellweger isn't one of these crazy quote unquote method actors who has to abuse everybody on set to get a good performance. I just, oh dear. <laughs> anyway, um, oh, hang on. I'm just gonna look at my notes again. Um, oh yeah, so I wrote another thing and that is where Joker seems to seek to justify and excuse violent people taking out their anger and hurtful emotions on other people, Judy reaches out to single and divorced parents, people who are struggling with mental health and disordered eating and victims of sexual and emotional abuse, the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, anyone else who's been dehumanized or abused in society for anyone that's been demonized or made to feel different. And Judy basically reaches out and says, I see you. I can see you. You know? And ultimately, I feel like that's where the lies. Um, so yeah. <sighs> Well, that's it for me. I'm going to call it a night. Um, thank you all. Uh, yeah, thank you all three of you who uh, tuned in to listen to my ramblings. Um, and for the uh, the one little heart, thank you. Um, yeah, I think next time round, I might uh, do this uh, live thing at a slightly more sociable hour. <laughs> at a more sociable hour. Hopefully with, I don't know. I don't know. Like I say, welcome to the new format of the Paradoxical Podcast. Just me on my own opining about films, TV, and stage, and pop culture as a whole, and where it intersects with social and political and potentially economic issues as well. Um, I'm a very strong believer in using art as a means of striving for a politic. And... Um, I think that's what this podcast is going to be about. So thank you for listening to me. I'm going to sign off. Actually, I've been talking for ooh, almost a complete hour now. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening, all three of you. I'm actually quite glad you listened. I'm glad you didn't go anywhere. I'm glad you stayed um, because it, it means a lot. And like I said, next time around, maybe a more uh, sociable hour. So that's it from me, guys. I'm going to sign off now. And um, I'll see you all. Um...
another time, hopefully. Thanks.